You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you guys always for listening to the show. This week's guest is certainly a very interesting one, and he holds the honor of having the most deployments of anybody we've had on the Hazard Ground Podcast with a total of 15 of them, five of them to Iraq, 10 of them to Afghanistan as a member of the 75th Ranger Regiment as the biggest part of his career, and he is Jesse Yandel, and he joins the program now. Jesse, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for allowing me to uh, share my story with your tribe today. Well, your story certainly is an interesting one. As I said, I mean, 15 deployments, that is just unreal. We always kick the podcast off asking how people got in the military, but you know, I want to take this in a little bit different direction because I do want to find out how you got in. But when you do that many deployments over the course of your career, like when you look back and you think about what you've piled into a career and what you were up against, how do you view it now that it's all over? Well, it's pretty simple. Like one of my best mentors... You know, um, guys will probably bust my chops for bringing his name up. Uh, but, you know, Rick Merritt, uh, be hard, do the right thing, take care of the man you're left and right. Pretty simple rules to live by. And as, as the trip started coming up and coming up and coming up, you just can't let yourself not take care of the man you're left and right. And I think that's just really what kept me in the game so long. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is what we train to do. And, uh, you know, we had quite a bit of business to take care of. And it's just really hard to walk away from that man you're left and right. I mean, that's a sentiment that we've, we've heard expressed a lot, especially by more of the, uh, you know, special operations community because of the way you guys train and what you have to do, that you're such a tight-knit community. But did anybody ever kind of say to you, you know, hey, Jesse, man, look, You've, we got this. You've done enough. Like we we understand it. We get where you're coming from. But really, you know, hey, take sit this one out, bro. Give yourself a little breathing room. Yeah, I mean, lucky for me, uh, in 2008, uh, I got nicked a little bit, and I was able to take a little bit of a breather. Um, so that gave me from my 10th deployment to my 11th deployment, 24 months off, while I recovered from uh, getting nicked up a little bit. Oh, so we would have went to 16 instead of 15. That's interesting. There you go. <laughs> Well, let's, let's go backwards and start. I mean, how did this whole career start for you? How'd you get in the military? Uh, excellent. Great question. Um, I think I was getting in the military from uh, the first day I was of this world on May 14th, 1978. Uh, I was raised by a, a Marine father, you know, who served during a uh, kind of a different time than we're serving now. Um, a little bit different uh, public perspective of like, you know, what they think of their troops, but at the end of the day, you know, my dad raised me under the same discipline that he learned in the Marine Corps. He kind of went a different path after he transitioned. He went into, uh, you know, 1% motorcycle clubs and uh, served in, in that style of organization, thinking that was the, uh, the right thing for him to do for quite a while. Uh, in 1989, he, uh, he took a different step and he transitioned out of that, that lifestyle. And he went back to the uh, standard American that was paying taxes and working hard and going to church and, and doing the right thing in his community. And that really, it was something that he did to kind of set the example for me, which I'm very appreciative of because I didn't spend the rest of my life in the penitentiary. But, uh, you know, right about the time I was getting into high school, you know, it was 
thanks for coming very, you know, the military is the way, whether it was, you know, being in a, uh, you know, a young Marine style training outfit that kind of got people in that Marine lifestyle or was joining the uh, local ROTC at my high school, you know, that really just like, you know, wherever I was going to be, there was going to be a military approach to it. And then after the day I turned 17, uh, my father convinced me that it'd be a great idea to join the uh, Ford Army National Guard, which I did as well. And uh, two weeks later, after my junior year of high school was over, you know, I went to the uh, Fort Benning School for um, underprivileged boys and spent about nine weeks of my life there doing basic training. Came back from my senior year of high school, um, knocked that out, you know, had a great time kind of not being at basic training anymore, and then knocked out the, uh, the infantry course after I graduated high school. Once I came back from that, you know, it was all right, hey, you've kind of laid the groundwork. You have all this college money available to you that we've paid for prior to going to the National Guard. You have everything the National Guard has available for you. So what are you going to do? And my answer was, well, I'm going to take off the next six months because I just lost that in Fort Benning, Georgia. And I just kind of want to chill out a little bit. That wasn't really the plan that my father laid out for me. So he asked me to make a decision uh, whether to you know, start school tomorrow and live at the house or get a job and move out or join the military active duty. And he wanted an answer by Saturday. Wow. And uh, that Thursday I gave him an answer and said I was going to Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, I just signed a four-year active duty contract. <clears throat> and the really the only reason I picked Fort Lewis, well, there's two, is the farthest one away from my hometown, uh, growing up in central Florida. And it was the probably the quickest way I could get into the Rangers, you know, combined, which was serving 18 months on active duty and then having the ability to apply for the Ranger documentation program. After being up in, uh, you know, the, uh, the real army for a hot minute, uh, I got levied to Hawaii after six months of being in Fort Lewis. Uh, my first question at the levy brief was, hey, I only have to serve another year here to go to RIP. Uh, can I decline this uh, appointment to go to Hawaii? And they're like, absolutely, except you'll be bartering enlist. So I didn't really want to like cut out my military career at that point in time. So uh, aloha is be the best word that I could come up with at that point. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, so, what what year is this all happened? This is all prior to 9-11, correct? Yeah, this is 1996. Right, okay. And I showed up to Hawaii uh, January of 1998 and, uh, just couldn't swing a dead cat without running somebody from the, uh, 75th Ranger Regiment as either my team leader, my squad leader, my platoon sergeant, my first sergeant, which as a matter of fact, was the first rifle company that I walked into in Hawaii. I had that style of leadership, uh, after cutting my teeth for about four months with them, you know, uh, there used to be these things called long range surveillance attachments. And uh, it was all about sending your best people to go succeed in these days, in the mid-90s. Uh, people that could, you know, walk a little bit farther, carry a little bit heavier ruck, and wander a little bit more about, uh, you know, out of their contract. So I, I got asked to go to the long-range surveillance attachment selection. And uh, same thing when I got there. I mean, you couldn't swing a dead cow without hitting, like, five guys that served in the regiment. Um, these were different days where the Abrams Charter was – very much intact and a lot of guys were you know taking a break from the regiment 
um, to go serve, you know, in, in, in different places because the army provided, you know, great locations back then that you could go to for four to five years and three to four years and uh, show your family a different lifestyle, i.e. Germany, Alaska, Italy, Hawaii, um, which has obviously changed quite a bit because those the opt-ins of those organizations are pretty pretty high these days. And, uh, you know, just, you know, every position I was in, I was just, you know, it's like I couldn't get away from guys who were like, you need to go farther, you need to go farther, this is not where you belong. So next thing I know, you know, I've graduated uh, Lurslick, which became Arslick, which I have no idea what it's called now. Uh, airborne school, air assault school, tracker school, got my free ranger, knocked out my ranger tab. And uh, it's like, all right, what's next? And it's like, all right, let's go to the regiment. And like, and I had a leader who was like, all right, stop. You need to go, you need to go down the line for a hot minute and be a fire team leader in infantry squad, you know, because you got it way too good here. Your shit don't stink. And, uh, you know, you need to get some reality. And that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me because I went down there. I got a platoon sergeant. It was a, a Panama vet from 275. Um, I got to join a platoon that didn't have a lot of Ranger qualified guys, period, much less a spec four. And then I got to go to the board and kind of present that, you know, here's a specialist going to the board with a Ranger tab. And, uh, you know, Steve Greer was my uh, SAR major at the time you know, very popular guy, in my opinion. And uh, he just kind of asked me, he's like, what are you doing after this board? And like, the only question I could tell, the only answer I could come up with is like, I'm PCS in the first ranger battalion. He's like, you think so? And I was like, Roger, that's our major. So, not, you know, it's still this time, the ranger regiment was so heavy on tab specialists that you couldn't, I mean, no matter who you knew or who your dad was, you couldn't get, a, uh, a contract to go to RIP. So you had to go get promoted and uh, and apply after you got promoted to sergeant. So went to PLDC, you know, got some awards, uh, sent my my awards and my uh, my promotion orders because you, you got promoted at graduation to the Ranger LNO down there at, uh, at the time, would have been Alexandria. And uh, got a reply back within two hours that said, you know, you got a, you got a class date in two weeks. And uh, if you can, if you can get there and uh, I'm probably the only guy to leave Y with two years time in service. And, you know, you know, in, in, in less than two weeks, you know, lately. <laughs> and that was pretty unheard of back then. Yeah. And, different uh, world before nine <laughs> eleven, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I was able to rock into the right people's offices and just be like, you know, this is what I'm going to do with my life and I want your support and uh, I won't let you down. Hey, back and, up for a second real quick. During that board, when that Sergeant Major asked you what you were doing, you said on PCS and did the Ranger Regiment. What was his response? Uh, recite the Ranger Creed. Okay, so he just kept pushing you. But like, what was the look? Did you see the look in his eyes or anything else? Was he befuddled, disbelief? What was it? I think he, I think he was more happy to hear somebody say the Ranger Creed than anything. <laughs> And, uh, you know, once I kind of knocked that out in front of him, it was, it was pretty much a done deal at that point. I knew I had his vote of, vote of approval. So you finally get to Ranger School, right, after all this? Yeah, I'd already had my tab when I was in the uh, conventional Army and uh, showed up to what's called the Ranger Orientation Program back then. Okay. Which is, which is now RAS 2. 
And it's a three-week program. Uh, they kind of put you through to obviously assess your critical events, which for the Ranger Regiment are PT test, five-mile run, 12-mile road march, uh, some other various physical activities, some airborne activities, and, you know, obviously leadership potential, because that's what they're hiring you for. And at the end of that uh, three-week program, I was successful and uh, kind of sat on the board, and they were like, you know, if, if you're right now, you're what we call a TDY and route to first ranger battalion. If you weren't selected today, like what was your plan? And I'm like, well, there isn't one, you know, like I, I came here planning to go to 175. I had orders direct and uh, it all kind of worked out from there. All right. So when you finally get to 175, first battalion, 75th ranger regiment, for those not familiar, uh, what are you doing? What year is it? What month is it? And kind of give me all the background. Yeah, so it was perfect. Uh, uh, they just went on a hard uh, training and deployment to uh, a couple various places. And, uh, you know, I kind of show up, new guys sitting in the CP and, and as a sergeant, by the way, which, you know, the regiment is all about, you know, different things. It's it's about earning your, earning your place at the table. Uh, I won't use some of the words that some people have, but there's a right to be there and just passing selection is not necessarily the entire right to be there. Like you still prove yourself every day is selection in the Ranger Regiment. So, you know, it was a little, it was a little rough in the beginning. I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain few words that you're, you're issued, you know, that people reply to you as, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, you just got to perform every day. Um, you know, from the time I met my sergeant major you know, to him informing me that I was going to be, you know, going to Charlie Company First Ranger Battalion to the time I met my first sergeant um, and backing up a little bit, get, you know, Doug Greenway, you know, probably one of the most famous rangers in my opinion. Um, you know, there's, you know, when your nickname's combat, you know, that means you're probably a good fucking dude. And, uh <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, Rick Merritt, who's just a fucking Ranger legend, part of my language. But, uh, you know, I owe everything in my life to those guys because they put me in positions to be successful. And then I went to Second and Charlie Company, First Ranger Battalion, um, which is, you know, quite frankly, one of the, you know, the farm teams of leadership. Um, a lot of guys that have served in the Ranger Regiment in high successful leadership positions over the last two decades of walked through the doors of that hallway. And uh, I had the honor to serve with those men as well. Uh, you, when you walk up the hallway from first platoon to second platoon, and then, you know, there was a mural that said, pray for war, kill for peace. And obviously in, uh, you know, 2001, September 11th, you know, that's, that's definitely what became a reality. Where were you on that day? What were you doing? Uh, we were, uh, we were not in the U.S. We were training, doing some other things, and uh, it was kind of interesting because we were in an exercise, and uh, one of our exercise controllers kind of informed us some, some something that had happened, and quite frankly, you couldn't sit there and defer between reality and exercise. We, we, we actually really didn't know, um, so it was kind of a really strange feeling for a couple minutes until um you know like the you know he kind of came out with those like the exercise is over at this time and 
obviously we went back to a uh, a safer place after that and then rotated back to the US. But uh it was it was very interesting uh moment <laughs> yeah. when that happened. I mean it was something I think about all the time of I I never you know, I, it was, it's even strange to think about. I can actually remember the feelings of coming off the airplane back to the U S after we've been evaded, so to speak. And what were they? Uh, like I, I felt like we weren't in the right spot. You know, I felt like, you know, we had all the tools, the right people, uh, the capabilities to, uh, to stay forward and, uh, and be, and be there, you know, for wherever our country needed, now, unfortunately, or fortunately, there's people that make better decisions than me. And, you know, they took the guys that were home, you know, they could get all their administrators and stuff, to, you know, squared away, you know, knock out a couple of rehearsals and then go, you know, lead that entry into that next that next place where we need to be at, which obviously was uh, third range battalion. All right. So 9-11 happens. Um, how quickly do you get to your first of 15 deployments? Uh, so right about August, 2002. Um, oh, really? Well. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, in first battalion, as a lot of people know, um, they scaled down the footprint quite a bit, uh, after uh, third battalion invaded and yeah, I would have never guessed in a thousand years that we didn't invade in a country and only one Ranger company would have went forward after that. Uh, obviously that was alpha company first Ranger battalion. And the story goes on with them with what happened on, uh, Takagar and the missions that they were uh, successful on and, you know, represented their men and their organization very well. And, you know, we just kind of went through the progress. We just went through the, the process, you know, trust the process because nobody really knew what was going to happen next. And we continued to train hard and, uh, you know, get ready for the next trip. I mean, it wasn't like guys were jumping ship. Guys were just waiting for their, uh, their number to be called. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be, a part of an organization that everybody kind of stuck together and waited for that number. And that, that came up there in 2002 and then kept going from there. All right. I want to take a little bit of a different approach because, you know, with a lot of our guests, we end up focusing on one, you know, seminal event or something that happened on a, on a given deployment. But because you've had so many, I kind of feel like I have to ask it from like, you know, what stands out to you? from your first couple of the deployments? Like, was there anything in particular that you remember that, that is an overriding feeling, thought, event than any other one? I, I mean, there's a couple out there. I mean, um, in 2003, you know, obviously we did the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that just thought that was going to be a lot more sportier than it was. But quite frankly, we were every mission we were asked to do, we completely knocked it out of the park. And, you know, sometimes the enemy doesn't present itself. And I had a platoon sergeant tell me once, who was a Desert Storm vet, you know, during our first deployment, he was, you know, here's the guy who went to Desert Storm as a private. And he just looked at us and said, man, beware what you wish for. You know, everybody's looking for this, like, great thing or this big gunfight, you know, but uh, one thing that Frank told us that I'll never forget is just, like, beware what you wish for. So instead of doing that, I think it kind of put everybody in the mind of like, just be ready for what's going to happen next because you don't know what that is. And it's a lot easier to kind of live through those deployments, just being ready for what's going to happen next instead of just wishing for the great big thing to happen. And 
and that kind of leads into you know a, a, an operation we did you know after the invasion back in Afghanistan where quite frankly we just we did a 65 day patrol wow <laughs> you, know, you know up in uh living out of a pack and a Toyota Hilux you know with uh you know 40 of your closest friends and I will tell you you know there's guys that'll tell you that you know, that deployment sucked, nothing happened, da 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 And I'll tell you, the friendships I'll have for the rest of my life were made during those 65 days. Um, and all those guys that were a part of that know that. And some that aren't with us anymore, um, you know, knew that as well. And, you know, it was just one of those things, like, you can't bond any harder than putting 10 guys in a six-by-six six room, you know, with no furnace, you know, and negative 14 degree weather. <laughs> yeah. <know>? And <laughs> let me just, let me put this in perspective for some people who, who may not know this. I mean, obviously, you know, patrols where you're out just, you know, pounding pavement and maybe searching houses and searching neighborhoods and things of that nature, you know, typically in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, those may have lasted a couple of hours to a day to maybe three days. I mean, even some might've even extended up to a week, but 65 days, folks, that's, that's two over two months of never putting your head on like a pillow, you know, you're just basically sleeping on whatever bag you have, whatever shirt you have, whatever it is that you're carrying around with you. Um, you know, obviously you guys train differently. So your mindset is different, but at any point in time, did you ever kind of question why you're still out there for 65 plus days? You know, is it day 30, day 40, day 50? I mean, what, at what point do you just go, Hey, what the hell's going on here? You know, once again, it got, kind of goes back to that initial embrace that I got in, in first range of battalion for my first arm. It was just like, man, you're, you're here to be hard, do the right thing, and take care of the man you're left and right. And uh, those are pretty easy rules to live by. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of things in our charter and the Ranger Creed, you know, that, you know they're expanded a little bit. But uh, if, if all you're thinking about is, like, just doing the right thing, because this is what I'm here to do you know, spending less time bitching about the process and more time, you know, figuring out how you can assist in the outcome. Uh, you know, things are going to work out a lot better for you. And I kind of lived my whole career like that. Like I just really didn't have a lot of time to complain because I was just always kind of worried about, you know, what can I do to make the team better? You know, you go through 15 deployments, obviously you didn't come out of all 15 unscathed, not you personally. I just mean the guys from your unit, do you remember that first one of your brothers who was taken from you and, and was it any different on a different deployment when you lost another one? Is the feeling the same? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great question. Cause it's going to sound kind of awkward. Um, so when March four happened, I was in, I was actually training for the best ranger competition cause I had the opportunity to do that. And the battalion was going to send, so many guys to do that because we we didn't go on that deployment with Alpha Company when they went through the Takagar uh, mission, you know. And I knew Mark Anderson like very well. I mean, and the, the reason I knew him well was because he, he was an Alpha Company and they had all the heavy machine guns, and, and I was a Charlie Company guy and we had zero heavy machine guns and Mark 19s. And just watching him train every one of my Rangers in my squad to get a go on the event made him feel so good. And it's something like, 
he would not let one of your Rangers leave his station until he absolutely felt like that guy was going to get a go when he came through for testing. And that meant a lot to me. So, you know, seeing Mark pass um, was definitely, it hit me hard. Now that was in, you know, March 3rd, 2002, fast forward quite a bit farther. I got shot October 28, 2008, and was home on recovery uh, from that deployment. And one of my Rangers, Anthony Davis, who was one of my gunners when I was in the weapon squad, uh, got killed on deployment. And that was on uh, June 6, 2009. And because I was home and the battalion was forward and I was the closest guy to him uh, while he was a Ranger, I was asked to be the uh, liaison to his family. Oh, wow. Um, so if you can think of kind of like a, a, you know, a CQB scenario, the army CAO CNO team is kind of the one and two man going into the family's house. Um, you wait for them to exfil and then you're the next guy that walks in. All right. Let, let me break down what you said a little bit for those who are non-military. So when he says Q, CQB, it's close quarters combat or, you know, uh, close quarters, you know, uh, contact with the enemy, uh, and the one guy goes through the door and the two guy goes through the door in that order, when you say C, um, CAO is casualties assistance officers, that, those are the people who go out and notify the families uh, that, you know, their, their loved ones are no longer with us. I, let, go back to when you they asked you to do that job. I mean, that's got to, because, you know, some of the casualty assistance officers actually get training on what to do and what to say and how to react and so on and so forth, but... In your case, that's not something that was, you know, part of your ranger training or ranger indoctrination. So when they ask you to do that, is that a tough task to do? Or is it something like you said, hey, I'd absolutely do it because this is my guy? Yeah, I mean, it was about, you know, 1130 at night when I got the phone call. Um, if you can think about the time differences. And, uh, you know, your, your answer obviously is yes, I'll be there. You know, you're jumping in a car, you know, four hours later to uh, head up there and is that team that the army sends up is walking out of the house you're the first guy to walk in and kind of be like you know the unit's here to support you we're going to be with you side by side through this entire event to you know honor your son and assist your family uh through this traumatic event and it was quite the honor that i had to be able to do that and uh you know one of my mentors uh you know doug pallister who was our regimental star major you know he told me during that event he's like you will be connected to this family for the rest of your life um and, and i will tell you that you know to this day he's he was completely right about that um is that a tougher job than combat in certain cases um, so I've heard it said quite a few times that, you know, your rear detachment deployment will be the hardest deployment you never went on. Um, unfortunately, that came true for me the next trip because I was asked to be, I was pretty senior. Uh, I was a master sergeant and they asked me to, I was a sergeant first class promotable, but they asked me to be the rear detachment first sergeant for the battalion the next trip. And during that trip, you know, because I was still going through recovery, I mean, we still had... You know, we had three Rangers killed in action and 26 that were very seriously wounded or very seriously injured um, in 2009. And 
you basically just ping pong yourself between, you know, whether it's Walter Reed or Bamsey. And unfortunately, you know, the uh, family events that are going on as well, you know, making sure those families are taken care of to the utmost importance uh, no matter what it takes to soothe their needs or soothe their, you know, their, their, their wants or desires that time to make, you know, to make that process work out. Because unfortunately, sometimes there just isn't enough army systems to make things work. Um, and we're, we're kind of there with some of our, you know, unit supporters uh, to kind of, to help them through that. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, it was some of the hardest work I ever had to do, but it's some of the most privileged work I've had to do because at least I got to be a part of, you know, them making it through it. And there's, you know, and those families are still into the recovery process today and will be for quite some time. And, uh, you know, you just got to make sure that, you know, no matter what, whatever you guys need, I'm, I'm still here for you even 10 years later. Yeah, I mean, what is the connection with those families like? So they, and you, you had your, your mentor tell you it was going to be, you were going to be connected to them for life. I, I mean, I'm sure you believed them, but what is that relationship like after all these years have passed? It's good. I mean, uh, you know, Anthony Davis, uh, his family, uh, you know, I'm still able to be connected to his sister today. She's stationed out in Hawaii. It's our first class on one of the uh, uh, kind of, I forget what they call it, but it's, it's, it's essentially the people that go back into South Vietnam and, uh, you know, assist with some of the mortuary affairs aspects of um, identifying remains. Her brother, um, Paris Davis, actually works uh, at the post where I uh, retired next to. So we're able to see each other, you know, every other week or so and, uh, you know, potentially get out for fishing or have kids over to my place or his place. Um, is always in, in conversation. Um, I happen to be married to um, a sister of one of the Rangers, the families that I assisted. Uh, we connected about two years later um, after Jason was taken. And, uh, you know, today we have, you know, well, as of next week, we have four-year-old twins together. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I'm a father of twins myself. So <laughs> great men produce twins. That's what I always say. Um, let me ask you about your individual, uh, you know, situation. Cause you mentioned that you had got shot, but I, I did read that, you know, the army wanted to send you home and put you out and, and said, Hey, you're no longer fit for duty and, and all that, but you managed to overcome all that. What was, was that when you got shot that they were thinking of doing that? Yeah. So, yeah, I had a pretty interesting injury. I got shot in the chest and, uh, luckily the round, went off my rib and basically splattered into my chest cavity. So even though I have one entry, I had seven canals of oh, injury. God. And through six pulmonary embolisms, one one of the pieces of the shrapnel went into what's called my pericardium, which is the best way to break that down for your guests is if your heart was an M&M, your pericardium would be the soft candy shell. Uh, around the peanut M&M. And uh, so I had a 2.8 centimeter piece of shrapnel, approximately 1.3 centimeters from my heart. Jesus. And uh, <laughs> I and I was kind of told, like, you know, if you never, like, jump off the back of your truck or, you know, fall down really hard in the backyard, that, 
you know, you would be able to succeed and, and live a healthy life without ever having to go through this painful, excruciating exploratory surgery. And my reply to my uh, my surgeon at the time, Jeremy London, there in Savannah, Georgia, was, you know, Jeremy, um, if that's the case, I'm never, ever going to be able to be a ranger or potentially be an operator again in my life. Uh, his immediate reply back was, uh, this is a Thursday. He's like, hey, Jess, I got an opening on Tuesday. You want to knock it out this week? And I was like, yes, sir, let's do this. And uh, knocked it out on March 2nd. Um, hold on, hold on, then, sir, hold on. You, you got to slow down because you're going to go, you're going to speed through this. I, I got to ask you something. <laughs> so basically, he's going to do open heart surgery on you and try to find yeah, a piece I, of shrapnel in your heart. Yeah, and I can explain this a little bit better. So I got, I had a, 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 an operation called a lateral thoracotomy. So the initial version of a lateral thoracotomy is like, we're going to go in on two different sides. One's going to be a tool. The other one's going to be a camera and we'll be under x-ray and we're going to try to pull it out um, with, with robotic tools. And if they don't make it, they switch the tools and they try to do it the other way. And they weren't able to do that as well. He said, the other thing is you're probably going to wake up with like an 11 inch scar on the side of your chest if those two one inch scars don't work, but don't worry, we're going to connect the two of them. And they basically pop you open like a Thanksgiving turkey and they go with forceps under x-ray and pull the shrapnel out and they drop it in a uh, container. And I got the latter part of that. So, okay. They got the shrapnel out. Mm -hmm. um, did, did you see it? Did they save it for you? Yeah, I got it in my uh, trophy case. Oh, you're um, lying. Really? You kept it? <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine uh, who bust my chops later, Mark Witten, who was my chaplain throughout all this and through many of my deployments in the regiment, um, was the first guy I saw when I woke up from surgery. And he showed it to me right there in a uh, small container. And uh, obviously, I was able to leave the hospital. That's the only thing I have from uh, all 15 deployments I brought home with me. Wow, what a memento. I mean, you must. I would look at that thing and be like, another millimeter this way, another millimeter that way, this little piece could have ended my life. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what they tell you when you're in, uh, in Bagram and the, in the cash is like, hey, you're the luckiest man in Afghanistan tonight. And, uh, you know, I just kind of took it, you know, word for word and said, okay, when, you know, when can I get back to my mates? And as they said, that's not the case. You're going, you're going home tonight. So I went through Germany and, you know, Andrews Air Force Base and then got home. And I mean, all I was ever trying to do after that was just, you know, get back to a platoon. Get okay. Back to so line. what was the, what was the rehab and the recovery like then? Mm, the unfortunate part for me is like, I didn't do a very good job of that. And that's why I'll tell a lot of guys who got injured. Like, you know, your, your number one goal after you're getting hurt needs to be recovery. My number one goal after getting hurt was how do I get back to work? And I was offered a position to be the battalion operations sergeant major, and I and I took it, you know, just because I just said, you know, the the only word I really knew very well in the unit was yes, and I just, you know, 30 days from heart surgery, I actually went back to work on the 10th of April, and uh, you know, was still on some pretty heavy painkillers, but I could operate pretty well, and I was able to kind of learn my new job and um uh, tear off of those painkillers because I didn't really want to take them anymore anyway and uh, I was able to operate pretty well but I say that the, the biggest thing that I did wrong was you know work was my focus it never became recovery it, it was like it was the last thing I was thinking of. it was just like how can I work more I, and actually 
work is easier than recovery. And that was a huge mistake that I made. Fortunately, um, after about uh, four months of work, I got offered, well, actually I got offered to climb Mount Rainier after, well, before I had surgery. And I got a call from a guy named Ryan Job, who was a SEAL that got shot through both of his eyes and was blind. And he had done this summit of Mount Rainier uh, the year prior to calling me, he's like, Hey, Jess, you know, we've selected you to be on our summit team this year. And I'm going to be right there with you every step of the way, uh, to base camp. And then you guys are going to go off and do the summit. You know, you'll be fine. I did it last year. Uh, I'm blind in both eyes, you know, just trust your team and they'll get you to the summit. And I was like, fucking I'm in, you know, like, how do I get to be a part of that? And 120 days from that lateral thoracotomy, I summoned Mount Rainier. Okay. Again, let me just put this in perspective for people who um, think you're nuts. Uh, <laughs> okay. So you basically had open heart surgery. Um, and, you know, this is the thing that pumps blood to all of the rest of your body. You're about to climb one of the highest mountains in North America, Mount Rainier in Washington State, uh, at a high altitude with a heart that isn't exactly 100% recovered yet. Are you nuts? <laughs> Yeah, I really didn't have like a uh, like a proof of concept at the time. <laughs> I because I mean I I really uh, all I did in the meantime was like go to yoga classes and because that's about all I could really do. I was gonna say you couldn't run or anything, right? No, but I got to spend about twenty four days in Fort Irwin in California uh, in NTC. So I was at, you know, I felt like I was at altitude every day, but I really wasn't doing what the guys were doing. I mean, I was on the target with the guys, you know, maybe doing evaluations. I was definitely up, you know, quite a bit throughout the day, working, you know, pretty long days, but I wasn't doing what Ranger was doing. I wasn't wearing body armor yet. You know, like I, I, it really still, like my scar tissue still hurt. I mean, it hurt on the mountain, but I wasn't on any, any pain meds. I mean, it was really just, it went really back to that first leader. that was just like, be hard and do the right thing and take care of the man in the left and right. And like, you'll be okay. Like, and I just, I just kind of went with it, you know, like what's the worst possible outcome? Oh, <laughs> <I'm> death. <laughs> well, that, that would be know, the worst possible outcome. This organization camp Patriot surrounds you with very, very solid mentors. I mean, they're giving you a seal who, you know, was shot through both eyes, who was successful. Uh, the year before they had taken a single below the knee amputee. Um, they give you, you know, mentors like, you know, Bob Vera, who's just even to this day, one of my most, you know, closest spiritual mentors, um, just guys that just give you amazing amounts of encouragement for you to get back on top of the mountain. And you're doing it with some other special operator teammates, and you're just not going to let each other down. Um, I even had uh, Kenny Thomas was on my climb team. Oh wow! You know, you know, and just like you know, having his encouragement, you know, and just like getting to connect with him and what you know him and some of his mates have been through. I mean, you're going to make it happen. And Kenny Thomas like, from a... Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down, correct? That yes. Kenny Thomas. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. He's obviously been through a lot as well. Uh, let me ask you, you know, the relationship and the bond that you have uh, with all these guys and everything, 
If the nature of the work wasn't what it was, would the bond be as strong? <sighs> Great question. Uh, I don't really know. Um, so my goal is just to get back to a Ranger strike force. You know, how do I get back to a Ranger company? And, you know, I just, I left as a senior sergeant first class. Um, my only goal was to be a Ranger first sergeant. And after I was successful on the mountain and after I was able to um, assess what we call in the regiment, the critical events, which uh, going back to like my first day at selection for the regiment was PT test, five mile run, 12 mile road march. You know, I mean, it's once I was able to get back to that state again and prove that I was back on top of the mountain, the next thing I knew I was going to second ranger battalion out of Fort Lewis, Washington to be on staff, but in order to be assessed to be a company first sergeant. And that's why I knew like I was back, you know, like I'm going to reach that goal. I wonder just because, you know, there are people I've deployed with who I haven't seen since deployment. Uh, I've barely spoken to him, you know, maybe a handful of times here and there. I bumped into him in a room. I guarantee it. We'd fall back in the old routine. Like we're best friends and we talk every single day. That's just kind of the connection that we have. And we didn't do the level of work that you guys did. And, and, and I say that just to illuminate the concept that, you know, the bonds are so strong, but I can only believe that because you've had the job that you had, um, the idea and, and the, the ideals that you hold to and the, and the kind of mantra that you live by never leaves you guys either. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, what I, what I, what was the furthest thing from me, which I wanted the most was I wanted my Rangers back. You know, like I wanted to be able to influence, lead and develop the next future of the Ranger Regiment. And, you know, after a year or so in second Ranger Battalion, I got that opportunity again to be a company first sergeant in Charlie Company second Ranger Battalion and deploy five more times with second Ranger Battalion after I just did 10 with first Ranger Battalion. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I had no reputation. Nobody gives a, a damn if you got shot in your last unit. Like, nobody cares in the regiment. It's, it's really not that big a deal. Like, we have guys that are hurt that come back to work every trip. You know, some guys miss a trip, some guys miss two trips. Um, but at the end of the day, a guy that got hurt a couple trips ago, the first question he's got when he's sitting in his room uh, with his doctors is, you know, how do I get back to the platoon? How do I get back to my squad? You know, my squad needs me, my company needs me, my regiment needs me. And that's just the mindset. And that's, that's been said, you know, you know, to a man, I can, I can guarantee this by every Ranger that's been, been hurt or nicked up uh, on a trip. And, you know, also pretty much every special operator, every service member, um, it's just like, how do I get back to my mates? What do I got to do? Um, does everybody like succeed in that? No. Cause there's some things that get in the way. You know, like sometimes you just can't pull it off. Right. Like it, it's, it's, and that's no fault of your own. I mean, it's, we're in a fucking contact sport and, you know, there's just some guys that can't pull it off, but you know, my, my whole goal was, I think I can do this. And if I can do this, maybe that'll inspire one more other guy to get back on the field 
um, if he can recover from what happened to him as well. Jesse, you spent so much time in your career just trying to get to a certain point to be a, a Ranger Company first sergeant and, you know, just be with your mates. How did you know when you were done? Well, it was pretty easy for me. Uh, I was on my 14th trip. Uh, my wife was six months pregnant with her twins, and I was the first sergeant deployed, and I didn't make the list that came out for Sergeant Major. And I had a great, I had a, just an amazing command team in charge at 2nd Ranger Battalion. And, you know, my boss just looked at me, he goes, what's your five-year plan? And I told it to him in, in direct order. I was like, here's my plan. I'm going to deploy next trip. I'm going to fill my commitment as a company first time. I'm going to deploy to a, you know, a, a station that's not going to provide, you know, not going to require me to deploy. Uh, I'm going to move somewhere local where I can plant my flag in the ground. I can focus on transitioning out of the military. And hopefully I can set up a job where I'm going to retire on a Friday and go to work on a Monday. He goes, that's the plan you need to do. Wow. And, and they were a hundred percent right. Like I had all the people like talk me out of what I, what my plan was. I had just as many people try to talk me out of it as I had people who told me they were jealous of my plan. They wish they had done that as well. And the more and more senior people who were like, you're making the right decision. Like you have served long enough, like just go forth and do good things and do good things for the world. That was the continuous comment. I think if it had been 50, 50, um, like, no, we really need you to stay in or like, let's think about this from an adult perspective. <laughs> I, it would have changed my mind. Like they would have got me. Um, but because I, I really, I had that boss who was like, you always got to have a five-year plan ready to go. And the day that list came out and I wasn't on it, uh, I developed a five-year plan pretty quick and he supported me. And, you know, I mean, to this day, that's one of my greatest mentors and the bosses I had after that who continued to support my plan instead of trying to pull me back and dial me back, you know, into, you know, doing, you know, staying back, staying in the military and continuing the next phase. Well, but the thing is, Jesse, you know, the old saying, you know, Tiger doesn't change his stripes. It, nothing that you'll do in the civilian world compares to what you've done in the Ranger Regiment. So how do you adjust to a life that doesn't have that? So, you know, to me, it's all about putting yourself in a, in a position to help people grow exponentially. So I left the military thinking that I was going to go into the commercial, excuse me, the commercial construction field. And I ran into, I basically got forced into a mentorship program with a guy named Phil Randazzo, who runs a nonprofit called AmericanDreamU.org. And he read my bio. He got some information about me from, you know, a kid that I coached, uh, who's one of my best friends today, who became my first, like, business partner. And, you know, Phil just said to me, he's like, look, I just think you got more to offer the world than sitting on a commercial construction site from 05 in the morning, you know, leaving your house at 05 in the morning, getting home at 7 at night. You already know what that feels like. You know, what if I was able to pull back the curtain a little bit and show you a different world of like what you could succeed at in, in this other sector. And by doing that, uh, I was able to go to 
multiple self-development conferences, you know, develop a network of just robust, amazing relationships, um, amazing entrepreneurs, amazing business owners and speakers, and, and then be able to sit in a position to go, well, now I can leverage this. And, you know, did management consulting for a year, started a marketing company that's doing very well today that I'm no longer a part of, and, and then pivoted to where I'm at right now, which is essentially my dream job. I mean, think about my career. My job title today is leadership and team building operations manager. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at a small startup company that's inside of a larger holding of 200 companies. And we only work internal to that company, you know, and we are the voice of innovation, strategy, leadership, and team building inside of this holding company. And that's the company I'm at today called LDR or LDRinvest.com. And it's just an amazing position to be in. I mean, I build facilitation um, courses for people to work out their strategy over the next two to five years to building team building events that allow people to have a shared experience that are similar to what we have felt inside of this community and allow them to grow and really get to know what their strengths and weaknesses are and like who they really are as a leader. Um, because at the end of the day, what these companies forget the most of is it's people above everything else to quote a good friend of mine's book. It's people above everything else. And they forget about their people and worry about everything else. And every step of the way that I was in the Ranger Regiment, where I was the most successful and the leaders that I absolutely adore the most, it's when all they cared about was the men. If I just take care of the men, we're going to be okay. And that's, that's just what I'm doing today. Is there a emptiness in your civilian life that your military life gave you? If that question makes any sense. I mean, not really. At the end of the day, you can only command us for so long. Um, some of my mates have found ways to stretch it out a little bit, but trust me, there's only so many of those jobs available. Um, I have, you know, I have enjoyed doing some independent contractor work, uh, where I get to kind of go out to some of the units and share some of my lessons learned and maybe be a, an enhancer for their training, uh, while I'm on target, you know, helping out with, you know, maybe the script or the roles that some of people are playing. Or, for example, uh, you know, some of the just the special effects that we could provide. I mean, it feels great because you're doing a service for the guys that are going to go forward and do this work that you were uh, doing in your past. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can only there's only so much say you got. I mean, uh, and as far as the emphasis goes, I'm really when, when I work with my clients. I'm, I'm only working towards a breakthrough. So as the same mission accomplishment I had, whether it was on target or leading and developing a younger ranger, at the end of the day, you're just working towards a breakthrough. And I've found ways to have those breakthroughs in my, uh, in my, in my private sector life. What's the toughest part about transition and, and what would you do differently? <laughs> you just don't have your mates next to you anymore. I mean, that's the bottom line. You become 
you know, the top, you're the top dog in a 160 man company one day. Uh, you transition to another post where maybe you're just doing a job and, you know, you're just a guy doing a job that used to be a different guy. Um, and then once you transition, like, unfortunately, like all your mates disappear at the same time. Not that, not like they're doing it on purpose, but like they are moving forward on the mission that they are expected to do on a daily basis. You are moving forward on a different vertical, you know, light years away from where they're at, um, trying to accomplish your job. So there is an isolation perspective um, that I don't, it's very, very difficult to prepare for. One of the ways that I've gotten through that is there's some coaching that I got where you need to develop, you know, who your top 20 people are that you need to contact every month and who your top 50 are that you need to contact every quarter. And that is something that's helped me through the process, you know, where, you know, some guys are just getting a phone call and they can't understand why I'm calling them every quarter. And it's just the fact that like, I want to stay connected to you. I want to find out what's going on in your life. And at the end of the day, I just want you to know that I love you. And, you know, that I still think you're important. And I think some of those guys that get those phone calls from people, you know, are very appreciative of it. And uh, some of them kind of need it as well, because they might be in the same spot. And my top 20 and my top 50 are not necessarily guys that are active duty. These are mates that I might have served with, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, that are out doing other things. But you need to not worry about networking so much that's what everybody says the key to transition is and i'm gonna tell you they're all full of shit it's relationship working relationship building you know building those strong lasting relationships you know and continue to stay kind of relevant uh you just can't drop off the earth for two to three years and expect somebody to take a chance on you uh luckily i was able to link up with some mates that you know had served in the same organizations i had and they knew what I was capable of. So when I contacted them and said, hey, I don't know what you're doing. I just want to be a part of it. <laughs> Can you fill me in? They, they were already looking, they were already looking to fill the need. They just didn't know who it was yet. And because you stay relevant and you stay connected, you know, you're just going to land on that person that has that need that you're looking for, you know, looking to field. And they'll build the freaking, they'll build the job position around you. And I was able to fall into something like that. That's just amazing advice. I've never heard that before. The top 20 and the top 50. I've, I've never heard it. And I think that it is a fantastic piece of advice for a former military, for anybody who's a civilian. I mean, you know, people coming out of college. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's tangible stuff that you can really sink your teeth into that really can have a positive effect uh, on a lot of different things. Uh, you know, in summation, when you look back on, on your career, you know, what do you, what do you leave with? Well, I leave with this. First of all, you got to be able to tell your story. Um, when I first uh, left the the army, I actually went to a thirty day intensive out in Silicon Valley, and they're like, "Okay, hey, you're gonna we're gonna teach you how to tell your thirty second two minute story." You know, and my initial run was like, "Hey, I'm Jesse Endell. I was in the army for twenty years," and they're just like, "Stop." <laughs> you know, you've got to have a way to make yourself memorable. And you've got to have a way to make somebody want to continue the conversation with you. Um, so you need to be able to talk about, you know, kind of what you're capable of, you know, what, what your jam is, 
you know, what really you enjoy doing for organizations and what you kind of want to get back to as well. And so many guys kind of just, uh, they forget, like, you know, I, I had a, I had a leader that, I mean, he'll, I'll just never forget this guy, Bernie Felino. do the routine, routine things routinely. And I use this in my talk when I talk to executives, sports teams, coaches, students, whatever, but do the routine things routinely. That's what great organizations do. Okay. They don't just wake up one day, you know, as Pete Rose says, I'm just like everybody else, except I got 5,280 hits, you know, like good organizations are just like everybody else. It's just, they just do the basics. Amazing. They don't do like practice makes perfect. They do perfect practice makes permanent. And that's what I try to leave with as well is just being able to help people get into that mindset to where like, no matter what, we're here to win. And that's the end state. No questions asked, get on board. I'm taking you to the end state. Let's go. It's amazing. I mean, listen, your leadership is inspiring. Um, certainly, you know, you have served your country in better ways than most have given the 15 deployments and everything that you've, you know, offered up as far as sacrifice of your body and your time and all that. And what you're doing now is incredibly important work and obviously representing veterans in, in a positive light as well. But we can't thank you enough for being part of the podcast. And, and honestly, I mean, just all great things as you continue to kind of shape society in a different way through what you're doing now. We certainly appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And to, and to all your guests out there and all your, you know, your, your fans, uh, I'm sure you'll have my contact information in the show notes. And for anybody who wants to reach out and uh, have a chat or connect at a larger level, uh, please feel, feel free to do so. I'm standing by to support. Just give that, give out the information now. Go for it. Uh, you can contact me at jessyandell.com, uh, which everybody in this country should own their own name URL. And uh, also hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'm, I'm the only Jesse Andell on there. And uh, I'd love to chat with you and, uh, and to extend the uh, conversation. Beautiful stuff. Jesse Andell. Thank you for your time as always, brother. Thanks. Mark. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.